Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Sasha. So this week, we begin a new series called In the Beginning. Uh, Over the next 20 weeks or so, we're going to be taking a look at the book of Genesis. Uh, The book of Genesis uh, is the origin story of creation. It's the origin story of humanity, the unfurling of God's plan to create and to bless and to redeem a people, a people that Jesus came to save. Uh, And from the very, very beginning of the Bible, God has been proclaiming about and pointing toward that central figure of the Christian faith, who is Jesus. And in this series, we will consider some of the most central figures of the uh, Old Testament, uh, specifically within the book of Genesis, uh, the events recorded in Genesis, all of which is going to point us and provide us with this biblical cosmology and anthropology and sociology and philosophy all through the lens of biblical Christology. Uh, Because what I hope that we can see 
as we go through this uh, series is that we can't actually understand uh, the universe, we can't understand humanity, we can't understand culture and society or our role in it and what God intends to do in and through the work of Jesus unless we see what God desired since the very beginning, what he's been doing since the very beginning. And this week, as we begin our series, we're going to start at the beginning of the beginning by looking at Genesis 1 and 2, the creation of the world. Genesis 1 and 2 provide us with some really important uh, information about God, about his purposes for creation, and our role in that creation. So what I want us to see is that Genesis 1 and 2 We're going to see three things about this story. We're going to see that it's a story of creation. We'll see that it's a story of cultivation. And finally, we'll see that it's a story of glorification. Okay, so first, a story of creation. So Genesis 1 and 2, obviously, are a biblical account of how the universe came to be. But these chapters also produce uh, some controversy after closely investigating these passages. For example, let me lay out some of those potential controversies up front. According to Genesis 1, God created the universe in six days. What exactly does that mean? Uh, For some, they note that the seven days that we see here are uh, seven literal 24-hour days. Uh, There are others that are out there that note that the word day in Hebrew, yom, is a word that does not necessarily have a time frame associated with it, meaning yom is a word that could also describe this undefined amount of time, and it could be translated as age or eon. So many interpret Genesis 1 as this undefined amount of time. That debate rages. We won't settle that debate at all today, but that's one controversy to put out there. The other controversy is that as you read through the Genesis account in Genesis 1 and 2, uh, they seem to contradict each other when you read the two. If you read uh, the two of them side by side, they, they do describe the creation account differently. And so for some, they look at that and they say, well, I guess we can't trust the account of creation in the Bible because there's contradiction that's there. Uh, Of course, uh, it's important just to note, though, that if we take that position of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 seemingly conflicting with one another and therefore we can't trust any of it, uh, that actually is rooted, I don't mean to be harsh, but actually rooted in a bit of ignorance about how biblical authors wrote. Um, Throughout the Bible, what we see is this kind of dynamic where the same events can be described in two different ways. And the way that we often see this uh, throughout the uh, biblical narrative is that one account may uh, look at something from more of a historical narrative perspective, and then there'll be another account that uh, recapitulates the exact same events from more of a poetic perspective account. Let me give you an example. So in Exodus 14, we have the account of Israel crossing the Red Sea. And in verse 21 of that passage, it says this, describing those events, it says, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And all that night, the Lord drove back uh, with a strong, uh, drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided. In other words, it's a very literal account of what took place in Exodus 14. But then in Exodus 15, we have a poem describing that exact same event. And in verse 18 of Exodus 15, it says this. It says that by the blast of your nostrils, 
The waters piled up. The surging waters stood up like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. Now, in this context, we can see the difference between one, describing literally what took place, and then this poetic language about what God was doing. We know that God wasn't literally blasting his nostrils. Rather, it was a poem describing the same event. With that in mind, that said, look at how Genesis 1 describes the creation. Over and over again, you see, and God said, and God said, and God said. You see that there was evening and there was morning. There was evening, there was morning. There's all this repetition all throughout Genesis 1 because Genesis 1 is a poem. And Genesis 2 then shifts to speaking about the exact same events, but in a bit of a different kind of way. You begin to notice that there is a difference in writing style between Genesis 1 and 2, and you can even see that in English. In Hebrew, it's even more pronounced. You see the repetition in one, you see the more literal approach in two. Why bring this all up? Because too often, I think for too many, though these are really important questions to wrestle with about you know, these controversies about the days and about the ways that Genesis 1 and 2 are laid out, the debate often misses the forest amongst the trees because there is something far more important, far more crucial being communicated in Genesis 1 and 2. And if you think that the two controversies that I just laid out are controversial statements, it's actually, those two are not nearly as controversial as the very first verse of Genesis 1. The very first verse of the Bible might be the most controversial um, verse of the entire Bible. Because Genesis 1-1 says that in the beginning, God created. And frankly, it's not unimportant about how God created. I think we can marvel at the scientific discoveries of modern day that look at God's creation and can discover some of the mechanisms within God's creation. It's beautiful. But more importantly than how God created, we need to be concerned with the fact that Genesis is addressing our need to realize that in fact God indeed created. The book of Genesis, for context, was a book that was written by Moses uh, for God's people who were coming out of enslavement. This people, they would have been uh, quite familiar with the various pagan accounts of creation that they would have heard in Egypt over the last 400 years. But what Moses most importantly wanted them to walk away with is that those pagan accounts were not true. They were false. For it was Yahweh who created all things. And similarly, we also need to begin there. That is the central thing being communicated in Genesis 1 and 2, that God created. And here's why we need to start there. Because if Genesis 1-1 is not true, then every word from Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, until Revelation 22, at the very end of the Bible, everything that comes after Genesis 1-1 is nonsense. But... We need to see, if we can see, that God was the one who created. Now we can begin to consider the various things that the scriptures teach us. But also, if God did not create, then everything that we hold dear, think about the things that are most important to who we are as humans. Things like love and beauty and purpose and justice. All of these concepts are just figments of our evolutionary imagination that aren't rooted in or grounded in anything beyond our conceptions of truth. 
not necessarily truth itself, but merely our conceptions of it. Without Genesis 1, 1, we are left with perspectives like people like Bertrand Russell. If you know Bertrand Russell, he was a well-known philosopher and atheist who was actually very honest about the state of the universe without an intentional creator. And he said this, this quote has always stuck with me. I have uh, shared it with you before, but this is what he said. He said that all the inspiration of the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast depths of the solar system. And that the whole temple of man's achievements must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. Only within the, sa- or the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Did you hear what he's saying? That everything that you hold dear, everything that we have built as humanity, everything that we've achieved will one day be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruin. And that the only way our soul's habitation or purpose can find, uh, can find any kind of safety is to build our lives on a foundation of unyielding despair. That is bleak, but it's also very honest. If Genesis 1-1 is not true, the best we can do is to hope to be deceived enough to believe that we matter, that our lives have purpose, and that our real hope is ultimately in just submitting to the unyielding despair in front of us. That, my friends, ought to be far more controversial than whether or not God created the world in six literal days or whether or not Genesis 1 and 2 contradict each other. Don't miss the forest amongst the trees. If Russell, Bertrand Russell, is incorrect about submitting to this unyielding despair. Genesis 1.1 is the verse that we would point to that says, you're wrong. There's actually something meaningful built into the fabric of the creation. What then is that built into the fabric of creation? What is the alternative purpose to the universe, if not unyielding despair? Well, Genesis 1 and 2 are not just a story of creation. They're also a story of cultivation, and it's in that story that we begin to discover some of the most meaningful aspects of life. Let me show you what I mean. So again, story of cultivation. So after uh, grappling with Genesis 1-1, the second really vital passage is actually Genesis uh, 1, 27 and 28, right? So if we can start with the assumption that God has created, now you move to Genesis 1, 27 and 28, to begin now seeing what God intended for us, for humanity. Verse 27 says this, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. These two verses are a robust anthropology or understanding of what makes us human. These two verses in our modern context might be even more controversial than the idea that God created. Let me explain to you why. I want to address three important facets here of God's creation for humanity, God's purposes for humanity. What we see in those two verses alone is that within humanity, there is a dignity, there is an intentionality, And then finally, there's a mandate 
at the center of what makes us human, a dignity and intentionality and a mandate. Let me show you what I mean. First, at the center of what it means to be human, there is a dignity. Look at uh, verse 27. It says that God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Let me pause there for a minute. In creation, we see a dignity and a value placed in humanity that we don't see placed anywhere else in creation. No other aspect of creation is capable of realizing, comprehending, experiencing, or embracing the character and the nature of the, creation, of the creator in the same way that humanity can. This image of God in us is why we care about realities like love and beauty and purpose and justice, because those realities are a reflection of the creator in us. And no other aspect of creation has concepts, understands such concepts, except humanity. Why? Well, of course, there are some who might reject the notion of a divine creation, and there are many who would uh, reject most of what I've just said thus far. But instead, they might also, they might uh, assert that we live in this, uh, you know, solely evolution, we're evolutionary creatures who have developed such concepts like love and beauty uh, and justice as a way of bringing uh, societies together, right? The concepts of uh, morality and treating others with dignity and societal bonds, those are all ultimately just social utility. And we just do whatever we need to do in order to um, perpetuate the ongoing propagation of our species. And they see some of these concepts as just merely uh, survival instincts that we've developed over time. But if that's true, if some of the things that are most central to us, things like love and beauty, justice, if that is true, then are we, if we're purely, uh, those are purely the result of evolutionary processes, are we really obligated to them? Right? We, we understand that they're helpful and useful, and I would agree. Right? They're, they're part of what makes societal life possible, part of what makes us uh, able to live and work together. But are we really obligated to them? if they're just these concepts that have developed over time, as opposed to being fundamentally rooted somewhere outside of ourselves. Why can I not just live my life based on kind of a survival of the fittest mentality? Why do I need to hold any of these as being valid? You know, if, if I'm a farmer and I am stronger than the farmer that's down the road, if I can dominate him, kill him and take his land, and use it for my own benefit. If that farmer has no real intrinsic value, then who really has any right to say that I shouldn't do that? We can not like it, sure. But is there, any, is there any, really anything rooted that says, no, that's actually wrong, you shouldn't do that? Because if my genes are stronger than his genes, it seems only right that we get rid of him, we make my genes expand. Survival of the fittest actually makes a lot of sense. When you think about, you know, scale that up to more societal level, who cares if Russia invaded Ukraine? If they're more powerful to do so, who cares? Let them do so. And if at some point Ukraine is able to gather up enough strength to resist, and instead of being dominated, they become the dominator, great, good for them. Why do we care? Well, because we know. Such things are not right. We know because justice matters. 
And justice matters because we know that humans matter, because we know that humans ought to be treated with dignity and respect, and we know that because we're made in the image of God. This is why these things matter so deeply to us, because they're part of our very essence, what it means to be human. We matter. So the first thing that we see about God's creation of humanity is that there's dignity in every person. The second thing that we see in God's creation of humanity is also an intentionality. Uh, Verse uh, 7, or 27, so God created mankind in his image. In his image, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, given our our cultural moments, I can't just rush, rush past that statement. That God created humanity to reflect his image, and in doing so, he made them male and female. There's a couple of things that I want us to consider about that idea. Uh, In some sense, first of all, we can't actually have the full image of God on full display without the presence of male and female. This is the way that God intended to make known who he is. And so he created them male and female. This means that there is infinite dignity and value in both male and female. And to in any way undermine that dignity is an affront to God as creator. That's not that controversial. What is probably more controversial, though, is the notion that though male and female are equally valuable and full of dignity, they're also different and distinct and bring particular uniqueness in their very essence. In other words, male and female, they're not interchangeable in God's creative design. Of course, there are certain uh, external expressions of gender and stereotypes of gender that change over time and are very culturally rooted. Various uh, cultural expressions of masculinity and femininity uh, are different based on social location. This is not what I'm talking about, though, because too often debates about gender categories wrongly center on expressions of gender. And those are important conversations to have. We need to have them. But what I want us to see here is that deeply rooted in us is our God-given nature, which is male or female. And as a result, there are important differences that, again, cannot be changed and cannot be interchanged. And of course, we live in a time when those categories have become quite confused. And we need We are in need of a reminder of God's good intentions for us. His good intentions rooted in his creation. He made them male and female. Now that said, it is also the case that some will struggle to identify with their biological makeup. And while there is uh, much that could be said, uh, it's important for us to know that it's a very real struggle. And so what I want us to walk away with today in this cultural moment that we find ourselves in is that if you're a Christian, please know that you must lead with compassion and empathy for those that struggle in this area. Those are very real tensions that people live with. And so on the one hand, I want us to be clear about what God has created and that our greatest reflection 
of him uh, as those bearing his image is to recognize that our maleness and our femaleness are from him and they're not interchangeable. But on the other hand, in the midst of holding that fact, we must also recognize the dignity and the value present in those who struggle to identify with their biology. And so as a result, any demeaning or uh, marginalization or mockery of those, inf- uh, those individuals is an affront to our creator as well. Why? Because even in their struggle, they are made in the image of God. And as a result, they are worthy of respect and love and protection and full dignity afforded to every person. There's a lot more to say there. I'm going to leave that there. Happy to talk more if you'd like to talk more at some point. But the last thing I want us to see in this account is that there's a dignity, there's an intentionality, but God's creation of humanity, there's also a mandate at the center of what it means to be human. Look at verse 28. Verse 28 says that God, uh, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. These words in Genesis are in direct contradiction to what we talked about before, Bertrand Russell's perspective, that the most we can aspire to is this unyielding despair as we await the uh, impending collapse of the solar system. Right? These words confront that idea head on. Because regardless of how one interprets Genesis 1, you know, with the age of the earth, or these, these verses here contradict any notion that there's randomness in the advent of humanity. It, is certain, it certainly undermines any anthropology or anthropo- anthropological claim that culture and society are merely human expressions or endeavors. There's something that is given to us by our Creator made in the image of God, given to us in the ways that we live in this world. And here's what's important to know, is that not only are we as humans to reflect the character and the nature of God, but in that we've also been given by God a gift to be co-creators, cultivators of this creation with God. You know, verse 28 is what uh, many call the cultural mandate, that God as a creator endows us with the ability to be creators or uh, to be creators of what we call culture. He obviously gives us bodies to uh, give life. We're able to create life with our very bodies. That's the be fruitful and multiply. But he also gives us the ability to take what he created in the world, to use it, to develop it, to subdue it, and create the various things that we see around us. You know, I could do an entire series, and maybe one day we will, on the cultural mandate and what that means for our everyday lives. I can't possibly do it justice right now, but just note that quickly. This cultural mandate, right, this idea that God desires to go, uh, us to go out into the world, right, to create culture, happens, this mandate happens before sin has entered the picture. Right? This is part of who we are in our essence, this mandate. This means that humanity's call to increase the number, to fill the earth, to subdue it, and as a result, create societal life and family life, politics, the development of technology, the study of sciences, the creation of art, and the various work that we do. All of this is a good gift granted to us by God. All things God has given us the capacity to do, and all of this we see before creation or before, before sin, rooted in the creation. 
Right? Though sin has certainly impacted families, it's impacted our work, it's impacted our politics, it's impacted our cultures, the creation of them with God was part of his purpose in creating us in his image. Now, just as an example, the families that we establish, the work that you do, no matter what your work might be, artists in the room, the art that you create, the politics that we engage in, everything that we create is possible because God gave us the ability to do so. And by engaging the capacities that God has given to us, we are expressing the purpose that he gave to us. And the best way that we can honor God with that gift is to use those capacities in a way that recognize him as the ultimate creator. And so in response to steward that co-creatorship in a way that reflects his character, his nature, that we might be true reflections of him. That means that when you're raising children or when you're doing work as an MTA driver or a janitor or a doctor or a lawyer, as an artist or as an inventor or as a scientist, whatever it might be, you can glorify God by doing that work in a way that reflects his character in nature. To recognize yourself, not as the creator or laborer, but as a co-creator, a co-laborer who bears the image of God. So, God creates humanity with dignity, with intentionality, and with a mandate. But here's where we need to now factor in sin. Because though it is true that we must consider that all of this was given to us before the fall, we also do need to consider the actual fall, which we're going to look at more fully next week. But the consequence of sin in this world is that we reject every single purpose that God has given to us. And as a result, we attempt to make ourselves God with the very things that God gave us. God gave us all dignity. All of us possess a dignity. And yet, we see injustice and mockery and sexualization and marginalization. All of those things are a result of undermining the dignity, the image of God in others. God made us with intentionality, but he also, in doing so, insists that there are certain ways in which we ought to view our bodies, treat our bodies, what we do with our bodies. But in rejection of his intentionality, we say, no, I will privilege instead, prioritize instead my desires, my wants over God's intentions for me. God made us with a mandate to be co-creators with him, recognizing him as the creator, but instead we build, we scheme, we take our God-given ability to create and learn, and we assume ourselves gods who can use that power to enrich ourselves, to care for ourselves, to prioritize and glorify ourselves. We have perverted every purpose of God by desiring to glorify ourselves. This is what we mean by sin. I mean, what better definition of sin than, than to take the good gifts that God has given to be used for his glory and instead use them for our own, rejecting him along the way. This is why 
we need to say one final thing about what we see in the story of creation. Because not only is it a story of creation, not only is it a story of cultivation and a subsequent fall from God's intention in that cultivation, but it's also a story of glorification. Let me show you what I mean. Uh, I'll have to be brief on this, but don't miss the significance of Genesis chapter 2, verse 2 in particular. It says this, By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. All right, a couple things. It's important to understand and recognize the rest that's happening here in Genesis 2, right? this Sabbath idea. The first thing, just to note, of course, we know that God is not uh, subject to physical strain, right? and so God has, and nor has God uh, ceased from all activity. So we at least need to start there. This rest that's being described there is not a physical rest, and it's also not God just completely uh, ignoring and walking away from all that he's created. He's still very actively involved. Instead, what we need to understand about what the Sabbath is, is that God has simply ceased from his foundational creation of the universe, right? That's the rest that's being described. But the second thing to notice is that in all other days of creation, right? We saw it, we spoke about it a a moment ago. Every other day of creation has a morning and an evening ascribed to it. But day seven never ends with an evening, The day has not ended. In other words, day seven is still continuing. Yes, God has ceased from his foundational creation of the universe, but day seven is actually describing his subsequent rule and reign over creation. It's a never-ending, eternal rest, a rule over all things. Now, here's what's fascinating to me. Here in our passage... We see this eternal ruling and reigning, this eternal rest that's happening right now. And in Matthew 12, verse 8, Jesus says something really striking, which harkens back here to Genesis 2, back to this Sabbath. Jesus, in Matthew 12, verse 8, says that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. What does that mean? I mean, if the Sabbath is the place of rest that began after God's creation of the universe and from where God rules and reigns over all things, then Jesus is saying, I am the Lord over that eternal rest. Jesus, first of all, is in no uncertain terms claiming himself to be God here in Matthew 12. Who else rules over the eternal but God himself? But even more, the Apostle Paul in, first, uh, in uh, Chronicles 1 says this, and if you guys want to throw this up, Paul is reflecting back to creation, and he's thinking about how Jesus interacts with and overlaps with what we know that God was doing in creation. And in Colossians 1, verse 16, he says, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. That the story of Genesis, the creation story of Genesis is a story of glorification because at the center of the story is the God who created and who is revealed to us in the person of Jesus. It is a story of a God who sees his creation, 
waywardly undermining and rejecting his purposes, rejecting the dignity that's placed in all people, the intentionality with which he created us, using the power of his cultural mandates to us, using it for our own glory. But one who also steps into that creation in order that we might know him again. And here's what I find so striking about this. If you want to know your creator, if you want to see the characteristics of him and the, the, the nature of your creator, if you want to find purpose and meaning within the creation that we find ourselves, if you want to see the depths and value and dignity that we possess, we need to see it in the person of Jesus because it's there that we see it fully and completely. The glory of God experienced through Jesus is our telos. It's our purpose. It's our end. And in the words of Bertrand Russell, our soul's habitation does not need to be safely built on a foundation of unyielding despair. Instead, it can be built on a firm foundation of eternal hope and meaning and joy, that foundation being Jesus Christ. For in him, all things were created through him and for him. The story of creation, even from the beginning, is one that is glorifying Jesus, the one to whom we look for our true meaning, our true purpose, our true hope. And so as we begin to consider more and more what's happening in Genesis, let's have that frame of mind that Jesus is at the center. He's always been at the center, even since the beginning. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you, Lord, for, first of all, your creation of us. We thank you for the dignity that you give to each one of us as image bearers. We thank you for your intentionality in creating us. We thank you for the uh, gift that you've given us to be co-creators with you in this world. But God, we also recognize that we have perverted those things. We've used those things to uh, turn our eyes uh, away from you and instead upon ourselves, to glorify ourselves. Forgive us for that, Lord. And would you fix our eyes on the one who reminds us of all that you have done for us, Jesus. Help us to trust in him and may our firm foundation be on him and him alone that we might recognize what you truly desire to do in us and through us. We ask all this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.